Okay, well, thank you for being here this morning. What I uh, would like to do is I want to just kind of give you a little bit of a picture of our church and then the kind of church that our church is. And I'm saying the kind of church that it is not because we're into creating divisions in the body of Christ, but rather some of you are here because some of the things that I'm going to say already resonate with you. Some of you are here and the fellowship or some other component is why you think the Lord might be drawing you here. And so I just kind of want you to know a little bit more about who we are. Um, Some of you are already through the membership process and others of you are jumping in there. And some of you are thinking, you know, we're visiting for a few weeks. They advertise this in the bulletin and we're coming. We don't know if the Lord's bringing us here or not. And that's okay. So in about... 30 to 40 minutes, I just kind of want to give you a snapshot of Grace Baptist Chapel, see what questions you have. I have a few resources for you, and then I want to make myself or the elders, uh, Blake, any any of us available to you should you have further questions. Um, And so let me just kind of walk us through a few things. Grace Baptist Chapel, to my knowledge, was founded in 1976. I say to my knowledge because... That's what that's the that's what I've been been told. None of our historic members who were there in 1976 are here because most of them are with the Lord now. So in 1976, a couple of churches came together. There were some who were from Southern Baptist churches. But if you know anything about the Southern Baptist Convention in the 70s, the Southern Baptist Convention was not yet conservative theologically. They were going through what they call the conservative resurgence. And so a group of Baptistic you know, baptizing only uh, people who profess faith in Christ versus baptizing babies. A group of folks from a couple of different places came together and started Grace Baptist Chapel in 1976. Um, This building and property were acquired and purchased, or the property was acquired and the building was built in, I believe, 77. I have a newspaper clipping that was in the Daily Press the day that the building opened, right? And uh, so... Early 70s, so the church is close to about 50 years old, Um, and the church has historically been a church that is Baptist, that has a high view of preaching, centrality of preaching, and what some people might call Calvinistic, right? If you're familiar with that term, it's maybe not the best term for it, but the five points of Calvinism, right? And in short, that could be considered you know, through the acrostic tulip, right, that we're born completely uh, sinful. Not that we're as bad as we could be, but that every part of us is tainted with sin. That God from all eternity has chosen a people to give to the Son to redeem. And it's those people that Jesus died for on the cross. That God then sends his Holy Spirit to preach Christ to our hearts inwardly as the preacher or the gospel track or the friend over lunch preaches it in your ears. And that if God is drawing you, his grace is irresistible. You will come to to, to God. However, to be clear, you actually do choose Christ. But you choose Christ because the Spirit regenerates you and gives you new life, and it's out of that new life that you say, yes, I'm a sinner, and I need Christ. And then we would say that God perseveres you to the end, that if you are truly born again, you will persevere to the end. 
very quick discussion of the doctrines of grace, but this church has historically held to that. If I say anything today that you want to dive into further, let me know. There's some resources, or I'll gladly talk with you about it. But this church has historically been Baptist and Calvinist, or predestinarian. Several pastors through the years, um, in the late 80s, uh, a gentleman from a church down the street retired and came here to start filling in, I think, and ended up being the pastor here for like 10 or 15 years. And um, when he left, the church was without a a long-term pastor for a long time. And the church had gotten down to about 30, 35 people, mainly senior citizens. And uh, in 2008, my family came here and... uh, Again, we were about 30 or 35 people, and uh, the Lord, by his grace, has just brought more and more families uh, and singles and folks that are middle age and even seniors all the way down to people who are college students up the street at Christopher Newport. Okay, And uh, we rejoice in that. So the church has been growing, and over the last 14 years, we've slightly changed how we structure our church. We, we moved from pastor and deacons to plural elders. And um, we also adopted a, a more historic statement of faith, a confession of faith, which is the second London confession. But, you know, the most interesting thing over these last few years is what God has done by bringing folks like you here. Um, and if you were here last Sunday, uh, there are a lot of children There are a lot of young adults, but we are not a church that is catering to any one age group on purpose. Okay. Uh, In fact, if you said to me, hey, I've got a hundred of this age group. If you do these things, they'll all stay. It's like, well, I'd love for people to stay. God's bringing them here. But we actually see the place for there to be older and younger, single and married. Right. In, In the in the church of Christ. So that's a little bit of the history of the church. I could tell you a lot of details about what God has done. I could tell you some wonderful stories of people coming to Christ. I could tell you about some people who've made wonderful sacrifices for this church in ways that are just uh, absolutely astounding. But God has has grown us, and that's a little bit of the history of the church. Our church is not connected to any larger denomination, not because we want to be isolated, but because that just has never been on our plate as a congregation, at least in the last 15 years, but we do have kind of sisterly or partner relationships with other churches. Um, and so, for instance, we host a conference with about four other Reformed Baptist churches. I'm in some fellowship with those pastors, um, and our congregations uh, did a youth conference together last year. Um, and so we don't necessarily want to stay isolated from other uh, gospel-proclaiming churches. Uh, Our church is congregational. That means that um, the congregation is the final seat of authority. We think that's a biblical thing. So even though the elders lead and, quite frankly, make a lot of decisions along with the deacons, the congregation, uh, every quarter has congregational meetings, and the congregation is the final seat of who enters the church in membership and who is dismissed in membership, whether for disciplinary reasons or you know, the family moves somewhere else. You'll see it if you come to the congregational meeting. We'll actually vote to transfer them to that church. The choosing of elders and deacons, the congregation does. The annual budget, uh, church discipline in its final stage. And if we should ever acquire any massive assets, like if we decide to buy a new church building or something, the elders don't do that, right? The congregation does. 
And, and we see that because in the New Testament, the church of Jesus Christ is a church that is called and commissioned to make decisions together. And think about what Paul does when he writes letters. And he, he gives lots of instructions to elders, but he, who does he ultimately say needs to guard the teaching and doctrine? It's the whole church, right? And so if our church were to change our statement of faith, the whole church would be led by the elders, but the church would, would make that decision. We do have uh, more than one elder, and just so you know, uh, I'm, a, I'm a paid elder here. I'm the main pastor-preacher, but in our view, elders are pastors, and pastors are elders, so there's not really a hierarchy, even though there might be, you know, you, you may see my face more on the platform because I'm the guy that's preaching regularly. Um, we, don't, we don't have a one guy running the show kind of thing. Um, well, on our sign, it says Reformed. What do we mean by that? Well, there's a lot that we could say here. Let me give you the very short version. Okay. Um, when the Lord ascended to the right throne of the majesty on high, about a month and a half after his resurrection, he clearly commissioned apostles to, to, to take the, the message of Christ to the nations, and they did that. And throughout the history of the church for the first thousand years, there was essentially those who were in the faith and those who were outside the faith. There were a lot of kinds of heretical things that the church had to deal with. But in 1054, the eastern part of the church and the western part of the church split. What does that have to do with Grace Baptist Chapel in 2020? Well, after that split, 500 years later, the western side of the church, which was centered in Rome, we could call it the Roman Catholic Church, was coming out of the Dark Ages, and uh, the printing press was invented, and there were a lot of uh, individuals who began to say, let's analyze what we're doing as a church in line with Scripture. We've, we've got original language Scripture passages, and, and we're beginning to see things. And think guys like Martin Luther. Think guys like William Tyndale. Guys like John Calvin, if you've ever heard those names. And so they began to say, Wait a minute, it's, it's not the church that makes the scriptures. It's the scriptures which are the foundation for the church. So we need to reform the Western church, the Roman Catholic church. That reform was met with, well, if you know the history, quite a bit of challenge. And everybody, in some sense, was probably guilty of something. But the reformers began to be kicked out of the Roman Catholic church. They said, we're believers in Christ. So they began to gather in little societies. And these were the Protestant reformers. And from that time in the mid-1500s to about the mid-1600s, Europe began to be transformed. So that in Germany, you've got the Lutherans. In Switzerland, you've got this French guy called John Calvin. right? In Scotland, you've got the Presbyterians. And on and on and on and on and it goes. And everyone was trying to say, let us honor Christ and organize the church as best as we understand the scriptures to say. In the mid-1600s, then, you have uh, the Church of England, Protestant. And some people in England began to say, wait a minute, there are some changes that we could still make based on the scriptures. The Lord has given us the light of his word, and let's make these changes. And out of that, you get three groups Presbyterians, Congregationalists, and Baptists. The Baptists, and I won't get into those other groups, and they're wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ to this day. We can partner with them um, in a lot of ways. But the Baptists said, you know, we're reformed with you. Like We, we think that 
the, the, the Reformation is something that's good for the church. But as we study how the covenant of God works through the scriptures, we're convinced that the people that should enter the church, the people that should be baptized with the triune name, are those who profess Christ, not those who are born to people who profess Christ. Right? So you get the Baptists. I'm not going to move into Baptist history. I love that topic. I'd love to dive into it with you. But this group of fledgling believers coming out of the Anglican church began to plant churches that were Baptist under severe persecution for about 50 to 60 years. They were accused of being heretics in some ways, so they had to come together and put a statement of faith. Right. So the Westminster uh, Statement of Faith that had happened in the mid-1640s, right? literally the, the, the government of England was about to become Presbyterian. And they made the Westminster Confession of Faith. But the Baptists were viewed as, you're, you're the weird guys because you don't baptize your babies. And you ought to be baptizing your babies. So what did they do? They got together and they essentially said, we need to put out for everyone to see, hey, we're not heretics. If you actually read the document that they attached to the 1677 Confession of Faith, which we now call the 1689, it, it, it's, it is overflowing with unity. Like We don't want to be divided from our Presbyterian and Congregationalist friends. Even the Anglicans, we just our conscience is held captive to the word of God. Right? That's where you get the confession of faith that we actually hold to as a church. We'll talk more about that in a moment. So that's a little bit of history about the Baptist part. But notice where we came. We came out of the Reformation. Right? We came out of the Protestant Reformation. So the Reformers began to say in the 15 and 1600s, worship needs to be done according to the word. The gospel needs to be proclaimed, and Christ needs to be trumpeted according to the word. Right? And so you begin to get individuals who are elevating God's sovereignty, the preaching of the word, above other kinds of more, perhaps, ritualistic approaches. Okay, There's a lot I could say here, and some of you are thinking, you're leaving a lot out. Yep, I am. <laughs> but that's the Baptist part, but the Reform part means that there are certain principles coming out of the Reformation that we, while we don't want to say, um, if you don't believe these, you're not a Christian. That's not at all what we're saying. There are certain principles that really are embedded in who early Baptists were that we want to recover, and we want to say, hey, we unashamedly hold to these things. When the gospel is preached, hopefully here in the next hour, we want to trumpet that God is sovereign over drawing people to himself. We, we want to trumpet that when we worship, we should worship publicly according to the scriptures. So we don't do certain things that other churches do, not because we think we're better, but because, hey, we, we think worship is driven by what the word says. So there's certain principles that are encapsulated in that word reformed. Now you think, I don't know what those principles are. I'm not reformed. I don't know. That, that's okay. We're not asking you to sign a card that says, I am reformed. We just, as best as we can, want to put out for everyone, this is who we are, so that you know when you come in here and you see us doing the Lord's Supper every week, or you hear the word Sabbath, or you hear the word worship according to the word, to, as best as we can, it doesn't shock you. Right? That This is who we think the church is to be. Right? When we don't baptize babies, for instance. Right? So that's, that's a little bit about... The Reformed Baptist kind of background. Now, what happened to the Baptist? Well, the confession we hold to was the dominant Baptist confession of faith until about the uh, mid-1800s. 
Most Baptists in this country coming from England or Europe or planting churches here held to our confession of faith. Then in the mid uh, late 1800s, there was a lot of liberalism that started to in, in, infect the academies in Europe and even in this country. And so gospel believing churches said, you know what we need to do? We need to rally around a very small amount of fundamentals. This confession of faith is great, but it's too big. It's too bulky. So let's rally around a few things. Resurrection, virgin birth, what the gospel is, and the fact that the scriptures are true. We would affirm all of those things. But over the last 100 years, what began to happen is when you say less and less and less and less and less, you do and are expressed as a church less and less and less and less. Right. And in the midst of all that, guess what filled the void? Another kind of theological way of putting the Bible together called dispensationalism. And so by the time that I was born, I was born in 80. Some of you think that that makes me a baby. Some of you think, wow, he's old. Right. By the time that I was there, the Southern Baptist Convention, you, it would, you'd be hard pressed to find a church in the Southern Baptist Convention in the 70s and 80s that was Christ preaching and reformed leaning. Right. But that began to change. But most churches that were Baptist looked very different than the way that original Baptists looked. So. In the 1900s, more and more churches began to recover a more robust confession of faith. Now, if you say to me, you're on a desert island by yourself, do you want the Bible or do you want your confession of faith? (laughs) I'm going to say I want the word of God. A confession, though, is what we confess, meaning we don't confess it if we don't think it's in the Bible. Right. So we don't we don't say, hey, the confession is up here and the Bible's down here. We say the confession is what we believe the Bible teaches systematically. And if we don't believe it, we're not going to confess it. Right. So what are some highlights then theologically in that confession that make us kind of look like the way that we do? I talked about God's sovereignty and salvation. A um, couple of things. We, we do value doing theology with the church down through the ages. So we'll confess the ancient creeds of the church. Okay? We're not some Johnny come lately, right? The churches didn't get started when the Baptists came into existence in the 1600s, right? So ancient creeds and confessing doctrine we think are valuable, right? Um, another phrase you'll hear uh, here at our church is the phrase, the ordinary means of grace. Um, what is that? Well, the ordinary means of grace are called ordinary because they are the ordinary or the regular means that the Lord uses to grow his people in grace. In the word of God, they are the things that the Lord points to and ordains. So Christ institutes them and he gives a promise of blessing attached to them. That's what makes them the ordinary means of grace. Those means, though, are preaching, prayer and sacraments. Think about the way that those three things are talked about in the word of God. They are commanded by Christ and they come with the promise of blessing to those who attend unto them in faith. So we base ministry here around the ordinary means of grace. If one of you brothers and I get together over coffee, right, and we're talking and your faith is encouraged or my faith is encouraged, we would say, hey, that's wonderful. That's like an extraordinary or supplemental means that the Lord used to grow me in his grace this week. But it's not the ordinary means 
Now, if you buy into that, and I think that's the biblical view, that means you put a high place on public worship, on preaching, prayer, and the regular administrations of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Which, by the way, we use the word sacrament and ordinance interchangeably here. When you hear me say that, don't think that we're Roman Catholic. We don't believe that they have magical powers. They're just means of visually seeing the word of Christ unfolded. So that means that we put a primacy on gathered worship, morning and evening, right? So do we have Bible studies from time to time, small groups, a men's work day, women's breakfast? Absolutely. But we're not a church that's heavily program driven. So I hope I'm not stepping on any toes. If you're here and you're thinking, I want to come here because you're going to have a program for my kid every single night of the week. I really want you to stay here. <laughs> but that's not us. And that's not where we're going. Right? Ordinary means of grace. And then organic fellowship that happens home to home throughout the week. We do have regular small groups for community in the week, touch points. Either one of the elders or another brother who's been kind of groomed by the elders will lead these groups. But that's our skeleton schedule because we think the word actually says this is, the, this is where the primary means of grace are, right? And we want to emphasize those. So that's why we do the Lord's Supper every week here. Now, I don't think a church is necessarily in sin if they don't. But if you're wondering, hey, they do the Lord's Supper a lot here. I've done it more in three weeks than I've done my whole life. That's my story, too, okay, because I didn't come from this kind of background. But there's a reason why that we, we do that. So uh, there's a resource that I'll point you to if you want more information on this ordinary means of grace. But you'll hear that a lot. Another thing that you'll hear a lot here is... Um, Law, gospel. What in the world does that mean? I thought we were people that just believed the gospel, right? Isn't the law the Old Testament? Well, we would, un- we would understand the scriptures, and our confession really helps to, to point this out. We would understand that the way that the Lord has worked is this. God, the eternal one, is glorious. And when he created all things in the space of six days... His chief creation was Adam and Eve. And what did he do? He imprinted a reflection of his character on their souls called the eternal law or the moral law. The moral law of God summarized in the Ten Commandments is just a reflection of God's nature. Think about it. Don't murder. Why? Because God is life. Don't commit adultery. Why? Because God is faithful. You ever ever wonder why these ten? Well, they're a reflection of God's character. Don't steal. Why? Because God is the giver of property. Right? Don't be dishonest. Why? Because God is truth. So he wrote that on the hearts of Adam and Eve. And when they disobeyed, they disobeyed this law. So throughout the pages of the Old Testament, you see this thread of this law that works its way through. And we're bound by this law and we're all lawbreakers. So what do lawbreakers get in the face of an eternal just God? Uh, right, you, you get you get the wrath of God, right? So on the Mount of Sinai, when God is taking a people and saying, I'm going to make you distinct because I've given a promise that Jesus is going to come and I want to give you a law to live in your land. What law does he give them? And he gives them special ceremonies and all that, but he gives them the Ten Commandments. What does Jesus teach on when he comes to the Sermon on the Mount? Some people think the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus giving a new law, but have you ever read places where he says... You have heard it said, but I say unto you. Some of the things that he says there are not contradicting the Old Testament. They're contradicting the way the Pharisees were teaching the Old Testament. So law, the Ten Commandments, run all the way through. 
And the chief place that they're seen is when the Son of God dies on the cross to uphold not just God's love for you, but God's law. Right? And so we would say now the law doesn't condemn us. We're in Christ. Christ has died for our law breaking. But the law has been given to us as a way to glorify God. Now you may say, yep, that sounds wonderful. Most everybody doesn't disagree with that, except there's two commandments. (laughs) One of them is the second commandment, right? And it goes like this. Uh, The first is, you shall have no other gods before me, right? Second is, you shall not make for yourself a graven image, which is not God doubling up on the first commandment. He's saying, don't make any representations of me or worship me in ways that I haven't commanded you. So, for instance, if you send your children to Sunday school tonight... (laughs) You're going to see curriculum, and there's not going to be any pictures of the Father, the Son, or the Spirit, right? Because we think, for instance, if we, if, if, if we take the law of God seriously, that we should honor God by all ten commandments, so we're not going to make pictures of Jesus, right? Now, our brothers and sisters in the publishing world and other churches, they do. There's whole denominations that make statues of Jesus, right? We, it's a secondary issue, but... We would say this commandment informs how we worship God and even how we think about God. But the fourth commandment, the Sabbath, we would say abides, right? Because of what I just said, God, God's law is a reflection of his character. It's, it's not just God making rules to kind of give us something to be condemned by so he can save us. It's a reflection of his character. How is the fourth commandment a reflection of God's character? Well, God being God is the center of of every part of our lives, including our week and our schedule, right? So you may hear the word Sabbath here, and I'm going to actually give you a resource. For some of you, this might be new. For some of you, you're like, yes. All we mean is that we place a primacy on Sunday morning and evening. In fact, we place a primacy on the whole day. The Puritans said that the, the, the Lord's Day, Sunday, was the market day of the soul. Now think about what we just said about ordinary means of grace, Preaching, prayer, and sacraments happen on the Lord's Day. So the Puritans, believing that and proclaiming that, from the scriptures are going to say, that's the day when the Lord chiefly feeds us, and then the rest of the week we're chewing on that with our brothers and sisters, over meals, over Bible studies, which are secondary to the preached word, right? But the Sabbath also encourages us in ways that it's difficult, right? Uh, Meaning this, if you didn't grow up with this kind of rhythm, the Sabbath actually says, Make your whole week and its schedule centered around the Lord's Day, right? Which means there's preparation to be done, which means that you, sh- you shouldn't work if, if you can, right? Now, we can, we can talk about that, right? We need doctors to work on the Sabbath. <laughs> I hope I'm not stepping on any toes. We don't need, we don't need professional football ball, ball players to work on the Sabbath, right? You get the idea, right? So you may say... It's new. It sounds legalistic. Actually, I would argue that holding to the Ten Commandments is a guard against legalism because every church out there has rules that they put out to say this is what it means to be holy. Don't drink. Don't dance. Don't wear pants if you're a woman. Right. Those were some of the rules that I might have grown up with. Every church says this is what it means to honor God. We would actually say if you hold to the Ten Commandments and and you are for the glory of God out of grace holding to those, then you're free in conscience in areas that aren't 
described there. So for instance, if you're here and you go to a dinner at a brother or sister's house some night, they may or may not have wine with dinner because some people drink and some people don't. Drunkenness is a sin, but the use of alcohol is not something that we can command uniformly, right? Because the law of God helps guard against legalism. So the Sabbath becomes a a, a big deal for us, meaning we want to devote our day as as much as possible to the worship of God, to the catechizing of our children, to the fellowship of the saints, and to acts of mercy, right? And so we're growing as a church in being all-day-long kind of people. And when I say all-day-long, I don't mean we're in this building all-day-long. We're coming to church, we're talking with our kids over the lunch table about the sermon, we're gathering with other people, right? We might be going to do acts of mercy or evangelism in the streets or wherever on Sunday because the day becomes a a day that belongs to the Lord. Now, I'll move on from this other than to say, you might be thinking, yeah, but I thought the Sabbath was Saturday. Well, there's a lot we could say here, but God created the world in the space of six days and then he did what? He rested. Then God, the Son, brought about a new creation, And on what day was his work done and did he enter his rest? The first day of the week. So you begin to see that the principle of God's law is carried all the way through. But the day of observance has changed because of God's recreation work. Now, you may say, I I don't I don't know that I can come morning and evening. I don't know that I'm an all day long kind of person. The way that we hold that here is that we just want you to know up front what kind of teaching you're going to get from the pulpit. We want you to know up front that if you stop showing up or you say, hey, I'm going to come once every month and I'm going to be doing baseball with my kids the other three Sundays. We're going to come to you and say, hey, brother right, or sister, like, look, look, to, look to the primacy of the Lord's Day. Uh, but we don't necessarily walk around and say, did, you know, did you go to Starbucks today? Because that means you're contributing to the work of others. Now, some of us have some preferences there, right? But we're growing in the appreciation for that day. But I don't want the word Sabbath to scare you when you hear it and you think, I didn't know that about them, so I'm going to put that up front. We just, all ten commandments, we think God has given us as a guide, Martin Luther would say, to help us on the journey. Right? Um, Regulative principle of worship, we do things in public worship that are prescribed in Scripture. So the reason there's no skits or drama by the teenagers, no videos being played in the middle of the service to make a point, is because those are maybe wonderful things to do on other days of the week. But when we gather on the Lord's Day for public worship, we we would argue the scripture has always said in every covenant, God gets to describe and command how people worship. So the reason that this might seem simplistic to you is because there's reading of scripture, prayer, sacrament, preaching, right? Those are prescribed in the word. So if one of you joined the church and said, hey, I've got a bunch of our teenagers together and they put this skit together and they want to play instruments for the glory of Christ, we're going to say, hey, great, let's do a Friday night fellowship. We'll have food. We'll have people come. It's great. Right. Let's do that. We just wouldn't put that in the middle of worship service. Right. Um, Our confession of faith is the London confession of faith. What does that mean? It means throughout the life of our church, we we use it. Our elders have to subscribe to it. The teaching that happens from the Sunday school lectern or the pulpit comes from that persuasion, right? 
Um, but individual members do not need to say that they fully subscribe to the confession. They just need to read it and tell us if there are any things they disagree with. So if you're filling out your membership application, you think, I, I, I kind of like what you're saying about Sabbath, but I'm not there yet. We're not going to deny you membership for that. All we're going to do is we're going to say, hey, in your own fellowship with the saints here, don't work against the Sabbath. Meaning don't try to get your own little group of people being anti-Sabbath or don't try to start a baby baptizing campaign or whatever that is. Right. Um, And if you have questions, ask them. Don't feel like, oh, they're reformed they're academic. I don't want to ask this question because they're going to think I'm done. We are all growing together. Right. Including myself. Right. Including the elders. We we're growing together. So there's there are no dumb questions. But you don't have to be fully confessional to join our church. We just want to say, hey, we want to put more out there on the Internet and in our bulletin. We want you to know up front where the elders are going to go when they get to a passage on Israel and the church or on baptism or on the Lord's Day so that everyone knows up front this is where we are. And we don't have to have little debates about what do we think about this or what do we think about this. It's just out there. we got plenty of question asking, but we don't really have to get into dividing over this half the church wants to do this with baptism and this half wants to do Everybody knows up front. I'm joining this church. I'm not working against the doctrine. I may or may not fully be there in every way, but this is where God has called me. And so, you know, I'm going to grow and I'm going to trust that he'll use the elders to gently kind of help me if I have questions. Right. And so that's how we think about the confession. The last thing I'll say about the confession is it's long. It's 30 some chapters. But we live in a day where we need to say more about God and his word than less. And the beauty of an historic pre-enlightenment, some of you kiddos may know what I mean by pre-enlightenment, confession is that it's time tested. We're not just coming together and saying, what are the issues of 2022 that we need to address? All right, let's scribble those down. No, no, this is in the stream of the creeds of the church, the tradition of the church, and it's not based on every whim that's been around for the last 20 years. So we kind of unashamedly say, hey, that's that's where our teaching is going to come from. Um, That's where our instruction is going to come from. It's going to come from the word, but this paradigm. But, you know, we've had people join our church. They were baptized as believers, but they're kind of convinced Presbyterians. But the Lord brought them here and they were happily members, even though they disagreed with us on baptism. They were baptized and they agreed, yeah, I'm not going to try to start baptizing babies. But we've had a family or two like that over the years. So we're not isolationist. We're not this cult that says if you don't believe the 1689 every single word, then you're out. We just say, hey, we think this is the best confession of God's word and its doctrines that we can find. So we're going to use it. And we're going to make sure that our elders are in full alignment with this. And then we're going to we're going to move forward. So if you think about the sermons, when's the last time in any of the sermons you've heard the word confession? Maybe here and there. But we don't get up here to preach the confession. We may reference it, but we just need to say more sometimes than less. Right? Um, so how does the typical week look at grace? Well, I've talked about the Lord's Day, primacy on the Lord's Day, uh, morning and evening. We encourage people, if you're feeling isolated, come in the evening. We have a corporate prayer meeting. People linger sometimes for an hour, hour and a half. You don't need to linger that long unless you want to. There's fellowship that's happening organically. Um And then we have small groups during the week, and they're not really that small, and that's okay, and they're probably going to stay that way for a while. They're kind of like midweek groups. They 
largely go over the sermon text, processing it for application. Hey, would it? It was like this for me when Blake talked about the the uh, angel of the Lord standing by. Right? Remember that from last week if you were here, right? And we pray together, and then sometimes these small groups will help each other move houses. We put roofs on each other's houses. I mean, all kinds of stuff. And then the rest of our church, except for a few isolated dots on the calendar, it's open for organic ministry. Right? Last Sunday after worship, a family in our church had my wife and I and some other people over right, for lunch. We just had fellowship. There wasn't a, an agenda in terms of this is what we're going to talk about. This is the kind of structure. It was just fellowship, right? And that's kind of how we structure the life of, of the church here. Um, some of you might be struck by this. Grace is very relational. Christy and I, my wife's Christy, we have four kids. Um, we, sometimes it's, I, I will, we'll say at the end of the day, did you get a chance to talk to that, that, that new couple or that new family who's on the back? And, and a lot of times the answer is no, because so many other people in our church have gotten to you before even the leaders can. And so we just have people that, are ready to engage in the life of, of other people. And so if you come to Grace, it's going to be a hard place to kind of join and then hide. It's not a place where people are in your business all the time, but it's a place where if you don't come for a couple weeks and you're you're a member here, people will text you, hey, you doing okay? They're not going to say, why weren't you at church? They're going to say, do you need something? Like, Can we help you? Is everything all right? right? Um, so... That's a little bit about Grace Baptist Chapel in, in, a, in a nutshell. Um, I, I've got a couple of resources here. This right here is a piece of paper that you can take, and there are three books that might be helpful to you. You don't need to read them. <laughs> but if you have questions about means of grace, about church membership and fellowship, or about confession, these short, less than 100-page books, give or take, might be helpful for you. Most of them are on the shelf. This is yours. One of them is by the Puritan John Owen. Don't worry. The words have been updated because John Owen can be quite uh, King James sounding in the 1600s. But it's called The Duties of Christian Fellowship. What does it look like to be a member of a church, to pray for your pastors and elders, to care for the saints? It's a a great short little resource. We've had small groups go through it before. There's another one here called A Toolkit for Confessions. Uh, It's very short, but it's... I don't know what this confession is. I don't even know how to read it, right? It, it'll help you if you want. And then there's uh, one other book here, and please don't buy this. It's on the shelf. But it's called Green Pastures. I wrote this book. I don't want you to go buy it. Please do not go buy it. Pull it off the shelf. The only reason I recommend it to you is because it comes out of a series that our church did that kind of changed the trajectory of how we think about the ordinary means of grace. This book is basically those sermons put into a book form. If the ordinary means of grace thing is you're, you're there, great. The last thing I'm trying to do is get you to buy one of the books that the pastors or elders put together. Okay? It's on the shelf. Don't go buy it. But if you're sitting here going, I don't know what you mean by ordinary means of grace, and I'm not. you just went so fast, I'm not sure. A lot of us were there. And as a church, this changed the trajectory. So we, we put it in a book form, right? Um, and so that book is available to you on the shelf if that is helpful for you. And then there's a, a little booklet on the Sabbath. If any of you are like, yeah, but what about Colossians 2? Or what about uh, Romans 14? What do you mean by you know spending the whole day uh, in acts of worship or 
necessity or catechizing your children. Right? It, it's actually a very freeing thing to, to, to just have a day where the whole day is centered around who God is and his worship and his service. Right? So I've got these here for you, as well as pictures of these books. Uh, most of these books are on our bookshelf. You just pull it off, write your name down, take it. You don't need to buy these books. If you can't get a copy, I'll get you a copy. Right? So don't. This isn't about buying books. It's about what might be helpful for you. Okay. Let me see if there are any questions here. We've got a few minutes. Uh, I covered a ton of information, and it might be a blurry mess, or you might think, "Yep, you answered all the questions that I came in with," or maybe somewhere in the middle. So. Questions about theology, questions about church kind of structure, questions about us. There's no dumb question. Anybody?